I appreciate that applause as I was getting up here. So the, uh... I heard a groan. Really? A, a groan? Anyway, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Steve, and um, I'm one of the pastors here too. And uh, thank you for joining us. We are studying through the book of John, and we are in John chapter 7 this morning. You know, last week, uh, Paul preached, and he did a great job, and um, and uh, one of the things he talked about was was the expectation thing. And as I was listening to his message, like, has anybody else been to that? What's the name of that park? Cascadia State, Cascadia State Park, where that whole, like, soda fountain thing is. I had the exact same experience as a kid. I was like, oh, we're going to a soda fountain. And I, <laughs> no, not, if you, if you, you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, listen to Paul's message from last week online. But one of the things he talked about there is how when Jesus didn't meet the expectations of the crowds, like the, the crowds abandoned him. And, what, and, and, uh, and, and Dave mentioned it, that you know, in the midst of all the crowds abandoning Jesus, when he was reading those hard things that were, when he was talking about those hard things that were, that, that were hard to understand, Dave, Dave quoted it this morning in the communion meditation, there was this dialogue between Jesus and disciples, and, and Jesus looks at the 12, and he says, well, you're not going to leave too, are you? You know, and the sense you get from that is that out of all of these multitudes, and that, that there, there were so few, it felt like it was just the 12 left. You know, you're, you're not going to leave too, and that's when, G, when Peter comes out with this, like, really strong statement. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So in the midst of all of, like, the, the desertion, Peter makes this, like, strong statement that Christ is the one that has the words of eternal life. And what we're going to see as we go into chapter 7 is that amidst all of this desertion of the people around Jesus, that there's, there's going to be this confusion and debate about who he is. And, and we're going to see that he was this controversial and, and, and largely like hated figure. And what we're going to see in the midst of that, because like as the, as the crowd's um, expectations were disappointed, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to address the confusion that's all around him. And he's going to then speak about like what reality is. And as he does, he gives us a little bit of a glimpse. And this is why it's important for us this morning. He gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what we should expect. Like if we're going to truly follow Jesus, like what should we expect as his people? If we're going to walk in the will in the word of God, that's my title this morning. If we're going to walk in the will of God, what is that going to look like? And how do we do that? Because clearly what the crowd thought wasn't accurate. It's going to break out into two main sections this morning. We're going to see contrasting motives and opinions. If you like to take notes in verses 1 through 13, contrasting motives and opinions. And then in verses 14 through 24, we're going to see contrasting authority and contrasting judgment in 14 through 24. So please stand with me as we read God's word. I'm going to read that first section for us this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive into it together. This is God's word for his church. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go to Judea that your disciples also may behold the works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. 
Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the work of your spirit, how your spirit enlightens our eyes to understand who Jesus is, how your spirit calls us to him, how your spirit like changes our hearts. And so, Father, I just ask that you would, you would use your spirit to communicate to us this morning, that he would empower me, he would open our hearts, that, that we would receive your word and that it would take root and it would be changed people who love you and are more devoted to you um, when we leave here than when we came in. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as we get into this, you know, these opening verses in verse 1 kind of start off with a sense of danger. It says, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, which is like near the Sea of Galilee, which is northeast of Jerusalem quite a ways. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. It's kind of a no-brainer, right? Like, hey, why don't you want to go to Judea? Well, because they've got a contract out on my life, right? So, but it, but... I think what, what John's doing here is there's so much more going on than just that. Because if you look right up at the next verse, at the verse right up above this, verse 71 of chapter 6, he was talking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And if you look down at verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. There's this whole kind of like picture that one of Jesus' inner circle of his closest friends is going to betray him. All of the crowds have left him. The Jews, a reference to like the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, were seeking to kill him. And even his own family, his own brothers, didn't even believe in him. Like Jesus and this kind of fledgling work of these, of these 12 disciples and however many else were left following him, are in this vulnerable place where they're isolated and alone. They've lost all their popularity. They've lost all of their, like, momentum. All of the people unfollowed them on Instagram, like, blocked them. You know, whatever else happens when you lose popularity like that. And Jesus' life is at danger. And so he's like, I'm not going to Jerusalem, right? He was unwilling to walk there. Now his brothers step in. You know, if you look down in verse, um, verses three through three through four, three and four, his brothers step in, and and uh, you know, I, I I grew up with brothers. I'm the youngest of three, and um, as and my next oldest brother is four years older than me. So I was always quite a bit smaller and quite a bit disadvantaged. And so maybe I'm reading things into this. I probably am, you know. But like, the Jews were seeking to kill him, and his brothers like, hey, you should go to Jerusalem. I've been there, right? <laughs> I don't really think that's what's going on. I'm guessing that his brothers are naive to, like, the threats in Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus knows the hearts of all men. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I don't think that they're trying to send him there to kill him. But, and, and actually what they suggest is pretty well-intentioned. Like, Jesus just lost, like, masses of people. And, and the Feast of Booths, 
Let me just say that. B-O-O-T-H-S. Booths. I was... I was teaching this, I was teaching a passage like this that referenced the Feast of Booths one time, and finally at the end of it, somebody finally asked me, like, why did they call it the Feast of Booths? Um, with a Z, Z-E at the end. The Feast of Booths, T-H-S, um, was a festival of the Jews. Like, I thought that was funny. Like, I just got like a courtesy laugh from that, and that was a true story. Like, somebody really asked me. The Feast of Booths. Sometimes some of your Bibles might read Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle is like a fancy Bible word for tent, but like they didn't have like REI in this day, so it's not like everybody had their quarter domes out and we're out backpacking, right? But the Feast of Booths probably could be called like the Feast of Shelters because they would build like like shelters out of like sticks and branches and stuff. Feast of Shacks, right? It'd probably be, but that doesn't sound very religious. So you're going with booths or tabernacles, right? Like in our but it's basically, it's this commemoration of the wandering of the people of Israel through the desert and how they had to live in tents. And they didn't have a permanent dwelling. And, and so the, it was a cool celebration because everybody would go up to Jerusalem and you, you would live in tents. And if you, if you lived in Jerusalem, you would build like a shack up on your roof and it would be like this camp out like in your backyard or whatever you call the roof, roof yard. And so it was this big nationwide camp out where they commemorated the the wandering of the people of God in the desert. And it was the most popular of all of the pilgrimage feasts where people went up to Jerusalem. And so the brothers are like, man, there is masses of people hanging out in Jerusalem. You need to go up there. You need to like work some miracles. You need to regain your public, uh, your public opinion. You need to restore your place as an influencer because right now you're down to 12. Right? That's what they're asking him to do. And so look what Jesus' response. Well, before we go to Jesus' response, look what John, John gives us a little insight into that. He says this, for not even his brothers were believing in him. That whole idea that Jesus needed popularity, power, influence, like that was, a, that was an expression of unbelief. In fact, the story of the Bible, if you read through the Bible over and over and over and over again, it's the lowly, the humble, the disadvantaged, the uninfluential that God uses over and over and over again to accomplish his purposes. Same thing is true of Jesus. Like, Jesus doesn't need power and position and, and worldly influence to accomplish his purposes. And their thought that he did was unbelief. Don't think that as the church gets moved to the margins of our society and, and we're no longer in a place of power or influence, that God's purposes are at all, like, under threat. Like, God is the sovereign one over the universe. He establishes kings and he brings down kings. Like, if, if he calls you to, to walk as a Christian today, like, his spirit is more than powerful enough to give you what you need. And this is what Jesus responds. Look what he says. Verse 6. He says that he therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. So the first thing he says is like, I'm not going to Jerusalem right now because my time isn't at hand. 
And if you've been with us in our study of John, you might remember that that expression, like my time, he spoke at first, like at the wedding feast at Cana. It's a reference to like the most momentous moment in all of human history. That, that moment when Jesus would go to Jerusalem, when he would be delivered up to like the powers there, where he would be brutally tortured, where he would be nailed to a cross, and he would be executed and experience God's forsaking of him so that we could be accepted. And his resurrection and his ascension, when he, when he talks about his time, he's like, that journey, back, Paul talked about that, that, that path back to like the Father was through the cross. And so when he says, my time isn't at hand, what he's saying is like, my whole life is controlled by this redemptive plan of God. I'm going to live my life completely in submission to it. And I'm going, to, I'm going to pull it off perfectly. So on that exact moment when God wants me to die for the sins of the world, I can like, pull that off. I'm completely submitted to the will of God. And that's where I'm going. So I'm not going to go with you right now to Jerusalem. You know, and the reason why the Jews were seeking to kill him in Jerusalem is because last time he was there, Jesus just ran into a guy at, at this well, at this, at this pool. He healed him, and he healed him on the Sabbath. And so back in, in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. It says, for this reason, the Jews were seeking to, all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is, Jesus is living this life that, of bringing healing to people, because he's God in the flesh. He's the one that is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's like, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem because my whole life is controlled by the will and purposes of the redemption of God. And it's not time yet. But then look what he says. It's really interesting. He says, um, your time is always opportune. The world can't hate you. He's talking to his brothers. And what he's saying is like, hey, guys, like this is... <laughs> I don't know if they really understood what he was saying, but what he's getting at is like, you guys are just part of the world. You're part of the world system. You don't like upset the status quo of the world. You don't even believe in me. And so it doesn't really matter whenever you go up. Your time is always at hand because your life doesn't really make a difference at this point in the redemptive purposes of God. So yeah, go do whatever. My time, your time is always opportune. And the world doesn't hate you. Why? Because they're part of it. They're part of this world system that stands in opposition to God. They're part of this world system that, that has settled over the world and blinds people to the truth of the gospel. And what they don't understand is that when, and when they say, that they, they tell Jesus to show himself to the world... What they don't understand is that when Jesus is going to reveal himself to the world as, as to who he is and, and, and reveal God to us, you know how he's going to do it? He's going to do it not through power and influence, but through humility and the cross. Back in chapter 3, that's what he said. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is John three fourteen through 16, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a reference to him being lifted up on the cross. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. The way Jesus is going to manifest himself to the world is there, on the cross, at exactly the right time for the redemption of this world, and his brothers completely don't understand that. You know, and he, and he contrasts his walking according to, to the will of the Father as, uh, look, look what he says, with their life, which is just part of the world. He says, this world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up this feast because my time has not yet fully come. He says, the reason why, like, you're just doing, live, doing fine in the world and why you can go up to Jerusalem whenever you want is because, is because you're not part of this plan at this moment like I am. And that the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Think about that for a moment. You know, we, we have this kind of cultural view of Jesus in our world today where Jesus is like this super nice guy, right, with Maybelline hair and like... Um, a nicely groomed beard that is just always doing good to people and never, like, calls anybody out. You guys don't understand what I mean by the Maybelline here? You're not old enough, a lot of you. Maybelline Jesus. Anyway, sorry. It's my crazy brain. Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And one of the things we have to understand is that for the world to experience that love that we, that we saw in John 3, that love where, that caused the Son of Man to be lifted up so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life, it's necessary for us to actually come to grips with who we are, with, with what's broken within us, the fact that what we do is evil and it comes out of like an evil heart. And unless someone is, has the courage and grace and love to tell us the truth about who we are, we'll never understand our need for Jesus. And he says, and when, when I enlighten people and call out their deeds as being evil, guess what response I get? They hate me. The one who came out of love for the world to die in their place is hated by the very one that he loves so radically. Now, there's some kind of critical application for us, I think, this morning in this. You know, as he's talking to his brothers, you know, as long as, as you and me are willing to just live by the, like, values and priorities and principles that this world and it's like the system that drives it like accepts as true as long as we refuse to upset the status quo like our lives will be okay and jesus is like yeah do whatever because it doesn't really matter if you're just going to live like according to the principles of the world because you know why this world all of its promises all of its power, all of its influence, all of its threats will one day all come to an end. And if you live your life in light of all of those things, like your life will account for nothing. But what Jesus says is like, no, I'm, I'm going to live for the redemptive purposes of the Father. I'm going to live for the, for the time that he's working in this world. And my life's going to matter. You know, it also speaks to us about like the, the critical priority 
in our age today. There is something in our age today where, where we want to like declare what is evil to be good and what is good to be evil. Do you guys feel it? I think it is all around us. In fact, Oregon seems to make an art form of it. <laughs> right? I mean, there are bills going through the house that are just damaging to human life and people. We make this art form out of, like, calling evil good. And Jesus is like, guess what? If you call evil evil, the world's going to hate you. You know, and so it's, it's absolutely critical as Christians that we think deeply about the truth of the Word of God, that we let it shape our worldview, and that we, we stand on the truth of the Word of God because like, that's the only thing that's going to anchor us amidst the storms that are blowing all around us. And if we, if we start tur- turning that around on its head, we completely lose sight of it because here's the reality. Like I mentioned this already, that the path to experiencing like the wholeness and the life and the love of God begins with an honest evaluation of ourselves. And what, what, did, what did John tell us earlier in the book? Like, but men hate, like, love darkness rather than light, and they don't want to come to the light. There's something within us that resists that at the very core of our being. And as God's people, we can't be seduced by the powers of our age to redefine reality in a way that just keeps people under darkness and sin and destruction. You know, that's why it's so important, too, that we have the same resolve that Peter have. that, like, who else are we going to go to, Lord? Like, man, the whole, like, culture around us is, like, hurtling, like, some direction. And, and like, it'd be easy just to, like, mm, it's a little bit too costly to follow Christ, and so I'm just going to bail. That's what Jesus said. Like, are you going to leave, too? Who else are we going to go to for, you have the words of eternal life. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that even when Jesus calls out evil as evil, that it's because he loves the world and he wants them to understand their need for him and restore them and bring healing and, and life? You know, it's important that we have that resolve because Jesus later on in John will say, you know, when we're here like three years from now, when I'm about retiring, um, in John 15, that was a joke. John, some of you are getting excited. Yes, he's retiring. Um, yeah, we, John 15, 18, and 19 says this. If the world hates you, church, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. I mean, pay attention to what he's saying there. Is that he's talking to his church, his disciples, and he's saying, you know what? I have chosen you out of the world. Like, you're to live distinct as, as bearers of the good news of the gospel and shaped by it. Like Hannah talked in her announcement, like this community of people who demonstrates like the love and righteousness of God to like this world around them. You're, you're called out of this world, and because of this, the world hates you. Don't think that, like, let me, let me just put a disclaimer on that. If you're going to be hated by the world, make sure it's because you're living as a called out one, like following Jesus, and not just because you're a butthead, okay? <laughs> There's plenty of that going on, too. 
But the reality is this, is that if we're going to live as followers of Christ, as bearers of the love of God and the good news of the gospel and the life and healing that comes with him, at some point in time, like that discussion of what's evil is evil. And the world may hate you because of it. And don't be shocked because they hated Jesus because of it too. You know, this idea of being chosen out of the world, like, I, I, it, this is important for all of us, but it's especially important for you young people, which is anybody younger than me. Um, especially important for you young people, like everything around us, like everything you stream. I mean, some of it's like, some of it's just like pure propaganda films from like Nazi Germany, right? Like everything you stream, everything you hear, there is just this constant like manipulation of trying to like retune your mind to be, to, to believe this like priorities of this world and the ethics of this world and the, and the values of this world and reject the priorities and ethics of the kingdom of God. And don't think that it's not going to influence you. That's why you like, you need to be committed to the truth of the word of the God. And we're going to get to this in a little bit, but Listen to what Paul says to the church in Rome in Romans 12, 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world. It's being like squished and shaped and pressed into its mold. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Like let God's word like be the thing that changes you so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If you young people, like, give that up, like, yield that point, you're going to be shaped. But we're all being formed by something. And you'll either be formed by the powers of this world or you'll be formed by, like, the truth of the scriptures. But there's no middle ground. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you do allow it to conform you, don't be deceived. Like the end of that is death and sorrow and pain. Now, I want to clear up, clear up something here because a lot of us, like, especially as I spoke about Oregon and like when Jesus talks about the world here, I just want to let you know, he's talking about this, the powers that's fallen over this planet that seeks to like direct us away from God, like this, the kind of cumulative effect of all of our flesh that just pushes us away from the Lord. But I just want to let you know that worldliness is not partisan. I want to say that worldliness is not partisan. My email is steve at creeksidemac.com. I'd love to engage with you on this. <laughs> Worldliness is not partisan. The world is seeking to destroy both progressives and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats. And if you're here and, and hearing me say, oh, it's the progressives that are the worldly ones, we need to watch out for them. And not like being cognizant of like your own, like worldly, the, your, the own influences that affect you in your place. You're in a dangerous spot. Like, I've lived long enough that I've lived in, I lived in the Chicagoland area, like the Midwest, for like, I don't know what, 10 years? Felt like 100. Um, <laughs> I lived in the Bible Belt South in North Carolina, did ministry, and, and I've lived here. Those are like the three main places. And I've done ministry in every single, each of those locations. Like, when Jesus says that he, like, 
that he's going out of the world. He's not moving to Idaho. <laughs> or Oklahoma or Texas or whatever red state you think isn't worldly. Because what I experienced in all of those places, the Midwest, the Bible Belt, worldliness is alive and well. And I don't know what's worse. I don't know what's worse to be like in a place where like, like where like there's this where we're just grieved by this like distortion of good and evil all around us like like sometimes we are in Oregon or if or like the Bible Belt South when I was there where the worldliness has this nice religious face where all of us are quite comfortable but I know this I know that some of the most anemic Christianity that I saw was in the Bible Belt South and I know from looking at church history and from the pages of the scriptures that God's church seems to do pretty well in places where they're hostile. So I just want to challenge you guys. Like, if you don't know where worldliness is impacting you in your camp, man, you better start, like, coming to grips with that. Now, you know I'm not saying it's not important to, like, have a Christian worldview and seek to elect leaders and, and, and enact laws that, that will contribute to the, like, benefit of humanity because we, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves and love them with the same intensity with which we love ourselves. And so sometimes that means, like, seeking to establish, like, good and just laws that protect the weak and, the, and, and life and all of those things. But at the end of the day... We're not called as Christians to establish like a universal morality so that we can all live comfortably in this world. We're called to proclaim Jesus as Lord and see people come to faith in him and experience the transformation, transforming work of his spirit so that they can like spend eternity with him. It's Jesus that's going to come and establish this universal peace, not us. I don't know where I'm, where I'm at right now in my notes. Stay where I'm at. Just keep, just, just keep ranting. <laughs> you know, but here it is, just simply, right? Like, if God calls you, has called you as a Christian, He's given you His Spirit. He's placed you right here, right now, as long as you're here. And I'm not saying you can't ever move, right? Like. But he has placed you right here, right now, in this moment, in this time of history. And it's not an accident or just coincidence. And he's called you to love your neighbor as yourself. And to love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And if we're just anchored in those two things, we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll, we'll listen to his word. We'll believe. We'll be like Peter. Like, to who else can we go? But if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, most of your neighbors, I would suspect, are probably of like a different political camp than you, probably have a, have a different ethic and value than you. They're seeking to establish their universal morality in this world. You're to love them as yourself. And I mean, the only, the only Spirit of God can tell you exactly what that looks like in every circumstance, but I know a lot of the, like, rhetoric and just anger, and I don't sense a lot of that in, in a lot of the dialogue that goes on today. 
don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and excellent and perfect. Brings us to our, well, before I move on to point two, in, in verses 10 and 12, you see some of the same sort of condescending, like, kindness in the, in, in the, the people that Jesus was, as they were talking about Jesus that you see today. Look what he says. But, the, but when his brothers had gone up to feast, then he himself went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. So Jesus kind of comes up there incognito would have been super cool to see you know then Jesus therefore was seeking him at the Jews therefore were seeking him at the feast where is he and there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him some were saying oh he's a good man right and like no he's not he's the son of God that's come to die for the sins of the world or he's he leaves people astray no he's the one that proclaims the truth but it's a truth that's completely contrary to all of your assumptions but then one thing everybody could agree on is that Jesus was like Voldemort, right? Nobody was willing to say his name out loud for fear of the Jews. Like they knew enough to know that Jesus is like persona non grata, like they, he was hated. And whatever you should do, you don't want to get caught talking about him at all. And that's what brings us to the second point. In the middle of this week-long celebration, verse 14, so right in the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up into the temple, and he begins to teach. He doesn't do the miracles like his brothers wanted him to do. He just proclaims the word of God, and he says this. When it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, then he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? You know, it's interesting. So, like, what happens is Jesus begins teaching, and we've seen, you can see this in the other Gospels, that people are like, whoa, like, Jesus never went to seminary, he never went to the rabbinical schools that we know of, he just grew up in, like, backwoods, like, Galilee, which is... You know, like, he grew up in rural, like, Oregon, where they, you know, they barely have schools, right? Like, how did he, how did he, like, come to understand God's word so clearly? And Jesus answers them. It's a pretty interesting answer. He's like, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Like, I speak for God, Jesus is saying. The Father sent him. The Father sent him to represent him. He's, we saw this earlier in the book of John where Jesus says he perfectly represents the Father. And then he says this in verse 17, which is a challenge for us. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. You know, back in chapter 6, we saw that like God's like calling and teaching and instructing people. And, he, and, there, and we saw this tension between like God's ultimate sovereignty and our responsibility. And here's a verse that kind of focuses on our responsibility. He's like, if you want to know if Jesus' teachings are true, at the end of the day, it's not going to be through like, like debates in your rabbinical schools or seminaries. It's not going to be through like analysis that there is a moral component to like understanding God's word to be true. And it's in verse 17 that you need to be willing to obey it. You need to be willing to yield to it and submit to it. If you want to understand if God's word is true and acceptable and perfect, 
You need to be willing to obey. You know, sometimes we go to God's word just because we want it to make us feel better. We go to God's word because um, it's the religious thing to do. Or we go to God's word so that we can argue with somebody else about some theological point. And but what Jesus is saying is like, hey, if, if you want to really understand if my teaching is true, like test it out. But you better have your heart in the right place. You better be willing to submit to me and my lordship or else you're never going to get it. And then he goes on and he says something that's, I think, really important for us. 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus says, he who, what does it say? He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, what he's saying is that he's talking about himself. He's the one that's been sent, and he's seeking the glory of the Father. He's like aligned himself with the Father's will. He is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. But anybody that speaks from himself seeks his own glory. I, I thought it was a modern thing, this like speak from yourself thing. And we hear it all the time. Hey, Dan, be true to yourself. Like you be you, right? Like follow your truth. What's another one? Anybody? I couldn't have covered them all. Come on. Believe in yourself. Like. Follow your heart. Yeah, thank you. Is that the Walt Disney one? I would start singing right now like some sort of like, let it go, let it go. I mean, everywhere there's propaganda, right? And Jesus says there's a person who speaks from themselves. They're called Americans who like seek their own glory, who set themselves up as authority, who, who look inside as the ultimate source of truth. Who think that if they can just be true to their most authentic self and redefine reality so that like my authentic self can be expressed, then I will find life. Right? Isn't that the message of our culture today? And Jesus says, you know, there are people that speak from themselves and they seek their glory, but they're not me. And they're not, and I'm the one with the words of life. That's not going to lead you to life. It will not deliver what you think it promises. You know, I think there's some application here that's really critical too. We need to be really, really clear that what we need at the end of the day isn't like being true to ourselves. What we need is something external to ourselves. We need Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel to shine light on who we are. Isn't that what Jesus just talked about? Like, I declare that their deeds are evil so that they can find life. We need something outside of ourselves to reveal who we really are so that we can understand our need, so that we can experience, like, forgiveness and the removal of shame and, and there's, like, kind of, like, the healing that the gospel provides for us. We don't need more self-expression and more self-love and more self-whatever. We need Jesus. In fact, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you hear that? 
God's word is supposed to make you feel great and make be happy. Well, it will at some point, but, but before that, it cuts you open, lays you bare to the very core of your being and judges your thoughts and intentions and, re- and brings those into the light. That's what we need. So that the grace and love and, and beauty of Jesus Christ can be applied to those areas that we are most sensitive about. And we can experience forgiveness and life. You know, I think one of the reasons why the cultural messages have such sway is because they do address something within us. This whole idea of be true to yourself, follow your heart. Like, I mean, I think like it's easy to kind of live in this anguish of like this double life where, you know, you live this one, you live this life, and it seems inconsistent with who you are. And Paul talks about it in Romans seven: the things that you want to do, you don't do, and the things that you do want to do, you don't do. And like you're just trying to figure it out. And so maybe I should just the things that I should just declare the things I don't want to do are the things that I should do, and then I'm, everything's good. It speaks to like the struggle within ourselves. But the truth is, is what Jesus offered isn't that. We just have to redefine everything. He offers, like, as we come into the light, he offers, like, healing and restoration and, and forgiveness and transformation so that we can be, like, unified and congruent instead of always living in this, like, double life. You don't have to stay in the darkness. You can come to the light. You know what? I also want to point out, as we go through verses 20 through 24, look what it says here. Uh, I'll start at verse 19. He says, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? It's interesting what Jesus says. So he's, he's not talking to just worldly people here. He's talking to religious people. And he says, like, you claim to like follow the law of Moses, which is the Old Testament like Bible, and yet you don't follow it. And proof that you don't follow it is that you're trying to kill me right now. And they're like, well, you must be crazy. You must be demon-possessed. Like, nobody's trying to kill you. Well, everybody knows they're trying to kill him. That's why they don't talk about him, right? Jesus goes on. He said, I did one deed and you all marvel. That's the healing of the guy at the pool. On account of this, Moses has given you circumcision, um, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge in accordance with appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. What he's doing there is, he, is he's, he's going back to that incident at the pool where he healed a guy on the Sabbath day. And, and the, the Jewish like, like rabbis, because they were so like obsessively literal about everything, they, they were in this like dilemma. Like, okay, the Bible says, like God said, we should circumcise our male children on the eighth day. I don't remember how they count, if it was inclusive or like if it's... But like depending on what day your child is born that eighth day might fall on the Sabbath day. Oh, but we're told not to work on the Sabbath day. Circumcising somebody's work. So what do we do? Right? And they're like, so there's these debates. Like, is it okay to circumcise somebody on the Sabbath? Is it, should we not circumcise somebody on, something on the Sabbath? Like, 
they finally came to the conclusion that it's okay to circumcise somebody on the Sabbath because by circumcising them, you're, you're bringing them into the covenant people. And, you know, and, and the rabbis talked about it in this way, that you bring healing to their whole person. So it's okay to do that work on the Sabbath day. And so what Jesus is saying is like, you guys already, you guys re- break the Sabbath all the time by working on it because you believe it brings healing to somebody. He says like, so this one time, I do one deed, and I walk in, and I don't just, like, circumcise somebody. He had been paralyzed or, like, sick for, what did it say, 30-something years? What was it? I can't remember the exact number. He had been laying there sick for years, and I made him completely well. And so you want to kill me? You know, this idea of... of uh, we can use the Bible as part of our rebellion against God, just like the Jews were. But Jesus is saying, like, you need to have this heart to like submit to it. You need to study it accurately and understand it truthfully and realize what it's really about. And what it's really about is God bringing healing to the whole person, is what Jesus says here. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. If you're going to make evaluations, make sure you're, you're seeing it as God sees it, not just how you see it. Judge with righteous judgment. You know, Yehuda, you can come up and bring your team up here, but, you know, as we're wrapping this up, there's been a bunch of application, and it's like stuff that like, like burdens my heart because I want us to realize that this call of God by the truth of the gospel is, is not just a call to acknowledge some things. It's a call to like this radical life of living for Jesus Christ, following him, submitting to him and his purposes, having this will to obey him so that the, the work of the gospel, the ministry of, of, of like his love for the world can go out to those who hate him. We need to be transformed in our minds. We need to, we need to be resolved in the, in, in the truth of, of the gospel. We need to like stand firm on his word. There's so many things, and, and everything in this world is seeking you to, to move you off of it. So I just want to challenge you. If you're, not, if you're not reading your Bible, like start reading it. Read it in community with other people. Talk to Aaron. Where's Aaron? Right there. Stand up, Aaron. If you're not a part of our missional community where you can be like, like reading the Bible in community, talk to Aaron so that he can get you plugged in. Like, because, because you're not, there, there's no neutral ground here. Like Jesus' brothers, hey, they said, show yourself to the world. They spoke about the world as if it's this neutral thing. And if Jesus just reveals himself, everybody will follow him. Jesus turns that around. He says, like, no, I revealed myself to the world and the world hates me. There is no neutral ground. This world is not a neutral place. No matter what state you live in, what nation you live in, like the, the world wants to destroy all of us. Our hope is to like follow Christ, read his word, be in community so that we can be transformed and live for him. So Aaron, why don't you close us and then I'll close us in. Yeah, one of the things we just... Was my mic on the whole time I was singing? <laughs> I am so sorry. I went to go turn it on, and it's already on. Um, we just sang this. I think that was a great song. You're here to thank you for... The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. 
For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for that, the reality of that and the truth of that song, that no matter how dark the night gets, we're not forsaken. We know that you're by us and by your side and that you will stay there. And though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil for you are with us. And, and Father, thank you that Jesus walked that path before us. He walked the path of rejection and betrayal and the hatred of the world and the unbelief of everyone around him. And yet he continued to, to, to submit to the Father's will, your will. He continued to um, just walk in the unfathomable love that you have for us as your people. So Father, I just ask that your spirit would transform us this week so that we would even just give the world a a little glimpse of that love that you have for them um, as we seek to, to represent you here in McMoonville. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.